0: Gotta have your guard up this week. It's episode 189 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and the reason I say that is is that we're grabbing our epes this week and talking fencing. No, this isn't ESPN. We're talking about a fencing comic from Boombox, of course, an imprint of Boom Studios. It's fence number one, and I have writer C.S. Pascat this week to talk about it. She's got some great insight, not only on the book itself, but there's stuff that I learned about her that I had no idea you're definitely going to want to stick around for this, because it's good stuff. Not only that, going to be reviewing Hulu's future man this week, Josh Hutcherson, breaking out of the Hunger Games mold. How's that going to work out for him? But you know what's next, right? Of course, it's a couple new comics. What we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Eric Burnham, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Fire up the laptop, the tablet, or drag out the long box. Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading, and I'll be honest. Normally, when I review books, I like to go with what I think is the bigger title of the week and start from there. This week, it was really, really tough to decide what to start with, so I'm going to go with DC Comics... And The Batman Who Laughs, number one. That's right, the metal tie-in by James and the IV. Riley Rossimo does the art. Ivan Plancencia does the colors. And Tom Napolitano does the letters. Of course, shout-out to the great cover by Jason Fabok and Brad Anderson as well. This story is one of the tie-ins that I was looking forward to the most because The Batman Who Laughs has been so far my most intriguing new character of the entire metal tie-in. And I was hoping that it would be a backstory book and it really is. And I got to tell you, this backstory, I'm not going to get into all the details because, of course, I'm not going to spoil the book. You know that by now. But I'm also not going to get into all the little details. But this really talks to the Batman-Joker relationship really well. And it also it, it speaks to how your actions affect things going forward and unexpected consequences and things like that. And I think dealing with that, and we've seen this in DC books before, especially as it comes to Batman books, but this one really shows you how the dominoes can fall. And James 10 and the 4th does such a great job of giving you every step in detail. And being able to do that in a book that's basically 25, 30 pages is pretty crazy. You get to see everything as it's happening. And what's funny is is how much everyone seems to be consciously aware of it. That's the other crazy thing. You're, you're seeing what's happening right in front of you. And, and, and it's almost like a powerless to stop it kind of situation, or at least that's how I felt as a reader. I knew exactly how this was going to play out. And it, normally that's a bad thing. But in this case, you know how it's going to play out. And it and it just kills you because you're like, ah, oh, how can this not be stopped? But that speaks to this character, I think. This character of the Batman who laughs. It, that's how I feel about Metal in general. It's like this is one of the few times in a big event arc where I just sit there and go, how in the hell are they going to stop this? How is this all going to end? And you get to see exactly how we got to where we are in Metal right now, too. A lot of tie-ins will serve their own purpose, right? They'll, they'll, they'll tell their own story, and this one certainly does. But this one also shows you exactly like, okay, yep, this is how we got here. This is why we are, we are now. And just, you don't beat it to death. But at the same time, you're giving me such great detail into this character and the demented mind of this character and the visuals as well. Riley Rossimo, probably the best artist you could have gotten for this book because there's a grittiness to Riley's art that just suits characters like this so well. And there's a couple of pages, again, not going to spoil this, but a couple of what I would call really tragic events that happen in this book. And you're just, your jaw hits the floor just based on the art. And, and you know, you saw that story earlier on this week, probably how DC is going to focus on a lot more art-driven Type stories, so or that's something that they're really going to focus on. And that kind of plays out in this book. While James Tin and the Fourth's writing is excellent, you pair him with an artist like Raleigh Rossimo that can also tell a great story and lend itself to that. You combine a couple of powerhouses and you come up with a book like this. While even though it's a one shot and it's part of a larger work, if I get a one shot or a tie in like this and I want an ongoing, I want it to keep going, I think that that is what the tie in does to serve its story best rather than anything else. You don't necessarily need to prop up the main arc. You need to make me want more from this character. And that's exactly what I got from this. I could read an entire story about the Batman who laughs, have it to have nothing to do with the larger story and still be entertained. And, and I'm glad it did tie in, but at the same time, loved this book. I guess you can't really call it a pull unless you're making a part of the larger metal verse. I guess is the best way that I could put it. So, buy the Batman Who Laughs number one from DC Comics. You will not be disappointed, especially if you've been intrigued, as intrigued about this character as I have. Again, the reason why I struggle to decide which book to pick first is because Tomb Raider has a brand new story back at Dark Horse Comics Survivor's Crusade. And the number one issue drops, and it's Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly who are writing, had them on the show before, and ironically enough, for a Batman book from DC Comics. Actually A Woods does the line art, colors by Mike, Michael Atea and letters by Michael Heisler. Now, what I love about this story is that there's a narrative throughout the story from start to finish. Actually several different narratives, and I won't spoil what it is or who it's for, but definitely it's Lara giving the, nar- the narrative. And you see how it changes as the story changes, and I think that is just such a smart move. It, it gave feeling to the character of Lara Croft that I mean, you know, that's there from her. But to establish that from the beginning, knowing that this is going to be such a deeply personal crusade and story for Lara Croft, I think it's, it's just something that Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly have done so well in other stories for other publishers. And when I saw that they were going to be writing a Tomb Raider book, this is kind of what I expected. This is kind of what I knew was going to happen. First of all, they know how to handle strong female characters really, really well and prop them up. And that's exactly what happens here. And they didn't even have to do it with a whole lot of action. But man, the action that was in here just pops right off the page. There's one panel in particular. Let's see. I would say that this is about three quarters of the way through the book when you're starting to get into the meat of where she is and what exactly that she's doing that I was like wow and again it just lends itself to how personal this is i mean she's she's looking for something sure because that's classic Lara croft right but then you find out why she's doing what she's doing in an encounter with somebody later on in the book and you're like oh, that's what we're dealing with, and that's when the hook completely gets in you. And if that's not enough, I will fully admit that I have not been totally familiar with Ashley A. Woods' work, but man, how is she not drawing more comics? I mean, just stunning. And maybe it's because she was just kind of born to draw a Tomb Raider comic and Lara Croft because the facial expressions alone I love in this because I think that she captures Lara really really well and that's one of the things that the games have done well especially the new games have done well is you're capturing laura with those facial expressions and the little things and ashley understands that clearly that that's a huge huge part of laura croft character and she's tough when she needs to be tough she's vulnerable when she needs to be vulnerable and there's another piece of art Towards the end, after something happens to Laura. And if you've read the book, you know what I'm talking about. Where it's just, it's a simple little thing, but it's also like, see, that's why she's such a badass character. It's moments like that. So you just combine these things together, and then you find out where this story's going, who's involved, and why she's doing what she's doing. And I am all in. This is probably the best Tomb Raider comic that I've read. In the last couple of years. And this is the sort of thing that I've been waiting for Dark Horse to do. With the Lara Croft character and Tomb Raider comics. And I'm glad they got Jackson Lanzig and Colin Kelly to do that. This is another pull for me. It's been a good, good week. Add Tomb Raider Survivor's Crusade to your pull box right now. Go to your local comic shop. You will not be sorry for sure. It's going to do it for what we're reading up next. It's this week in Geek Tame and my spoiler-filled review... Of the Future Man. Next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Riddle, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, you may never play video games the same way again. It's time for my spoiler-filled-ish review of Future Man. Of course, this is on Hulu, starring Josh Hutcherson and many, many others. And it's basically about a character named Josh Futterman, who's a janitor at a science lab who's trying to find a cure for herpes, which is funny enough. And he's the best at his video game, which ends up being a training simulator for a future disaster in which this cure for herpes kind of snowballs and becomes a cure for all disease and sort of destroys the world and so on and so forth. So that's kind of where the story picks up. And then you've got two other characters named Wolf, who's played by Derek Wilson and Eliza Koop who plays Tiger, and they're sent back from the future to get their future man, who, of course, is Futterman, who they think is going to help them save the world in the future from the evil Dr. Cornish, who's played by Keith David. Now, again, I'm not going to pick apart every little thing about this show. I'm just going to go with what did I like and what did I not like and go from there. First of all, I will, you know, cards on the table, I'm only going to talk about the first eight episodes. This was a 13-episode series, and I do plan on finishing it, but I will say this from the get-go. I felt several times like this show could have easily ended at six episodes, at eight episodes. So I feel like they kept doing things in the story to lengthen it unnecessarily. That's not to say that I didn't like the show. I will get to more of that here in just a second. I just feel like 13 episodes, even though I haven't really gotten there yet, I kind of see where it's going already. I actually saw where it was going after like two episodes, and you could say whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing based on that. But I feel like this is a story that really, really could have been wrapped up quicker and I think might have served the show a little better if they didn't try to drag it out to as many episodes. And it's not that I was having a hard time getting through these episodes. It's only half an hour per episode, really. But at the same time, I'm going, okay, so how are they going to get 13 episodes out of this? Because I feel like we're already coming towards a conclusion here. And what it kind of gets bogged down in is, is a lot of stretching out humor that doesn't need to be stretched out. Or, or a lot of the excessively violent fight scenes that really didn't need to be dragged out certain things that I, that I felt they focused a little bit too much on and not on a story that's actually pretty unique I mean the idea that it, that a video game could be a training simulator for some sort of future fight that needs to happen great concept right and and it's silly enough as well that was one thing I really did like about the show it is that it was a silly it's silly in a way that South Park is silly and, it, and it's deadpan at times and it's over the top at times and it felt very South Park to me except it didn't execute things as well as South Park does whereas South Park can be over the top and it can be outlandish and it can be just stupid funny sometimes but they find a way to do it so well and I think that was one of this show's biggest failings is that the writing for some of these characters just wasn't up to par like the writing is up to par ...on South Park, and that's one of the closest things I can think to compare it to, even though it's a completely different show. Don't get me wrong, I realize that. But I feel like some of these characters were only given but so much... That they could do. Like, one of the characters I, th- I felt they actually did really well with was Derek Wilson's character in Wolf. While he was deadpan and really gung-ho and he hates Futterman at first and then he kind of grows on him and, and he, you know, turn- comes to like him and things like that. And there are things that happen with Wolf being such a fish-out-of-water character in, a mo- in, in 2017, which is not a modern time for him at all and the world is completely different. Like when they made him again, spoiler filled guys. So if you haven't realized that by now, you're kind of out of luck when they make him a chef and make him really love cooking. That was hilarious for me for some reason. And when he's making the Cornish balls for the, for that big party and he's going to, they're going to try and get everybody sick and he takes it so seriously. That was really, really funny for me. So I almost feel like if they gave Wolf a little bit more than, and and they let the care, other characters evolve, like they let his evolve. I feel like it would have been better. And Eliza Coop's character of Tiger, you see her be pretty standard, and she has a couple of of fish-out-of-water jokes as well, but they didn't quite land for me. As a matter of fact, I would say the first two episodes of this show really, really had me. I was engaged. I felt like I was laughing a lot. I felt like the story was really setting a good pace. And then I realized there was 13 episodes, and I'm going, okay, this just doesn't seem like it should be. 13 episodes. And then I will admit, as I started watching more and I get towards episode eight, I found myself laughing less. I found myself, you know, not paying as close of attention as I normally would have if I was really, really into the storyline, because I feel like I already figured it out and I already knew where it was going. And the jokes weren't funny enough to make me pay attention on a consistent basis. Now, that's that's not to say I didn't laugh. There was an episode where I just didn't laugh at all. That's certainly not the case. I, I had a little bit of a laugh here and there in every episode. But, you know, you can only do so many you know obscene jokes or bathroom humor or, or jokes about semen before you go, okay. <laughs> you know, you do it so many times, you make it not funny anymore, right? You know what I mean? It's almost like, okay, not only do I see the joke coming, but, all right, this is where, okay, I see what you're doing there. So that that's how we're going to do it. I completely understand that. Like like getting like getting Wolf high, that was funny. But then you see him do other things and it's like, ah, well, it's pretty similar. You know, he's wigging out again. I'm not sure that this is funny anymore. There was one thing that I did think was consistently funny, even though it was the same thing over and over again. And that was the Futterman parents. Gabe Futterman, who's played by Ed Bagley Jr. And Glena Headley, who plays Mrs. Futterman, the way that they are just the clingy my son can do no wrong we love you we want you to live with us forever kind of parents were so so funny and when they were introduced to tiger and wolf and they kind of took them in as homeless people and tried to 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 mold them and you know you know shape them into who they are and and kind of acclimate them that was just so funny i could have watched more of them and had them be more of a part of the story as well and it's not to say that the story's not executed properly. I think that they're doing it exactly the way that they want to do it, but. And you're trying to show the consequences of time travel. I get that. You know, the whole Detective Skarsgard thing, and he's got a vendetta, and everything that happened at the Futterman home when they went back there and things went awry. But that just didn't play off for me. And there's just so much time travel. There's so many time travel shows now and so much dealing with the consequences of time travel. I see this one and I go, eh, you didn't really execute that that well. And and there was some video game humor in here. Like when, when Wolf and Tiger are fighting, they're literally calling out the video game moves and they're a little bit over the top. That got a good smile out of me. There's discussions about, you know, Movies like Back to the Future, and they talk about how Super Mario Bros. is a ridiculous game, which it is not, by the way. Very funny, the description that Josh Hutcherson gives, by the way, in, in that joke. So I did think it was funny. Totally disagree with it, but definitely did think it was funny. I guess I felt like it. maybe it would have been a disservice if they focused too much on that. But I, I wanted more of that. I wanted more from this show of what I saw in the first couple of episodes. And I guess the first couple of episodes brought, bought me enough cred to want to stick with it and see what happens and see exactly how they're going to do this. And I mean, Haley Joel Osment's character, like he's an asshole and you know that going in and you know that he's a larger part of what's really going on here. And maybe he's the, again, I'm only on episode eight. So this is something that I might find out later on. You know, maybe he's the guy that's been stirring the drink the entire time and they're and they're after the wrong dude. That's kind of where I'm at with this, and I will fully revise this review at some point if I'm wrong about that. I just feel like you're giving me twists just to keep me sticking around for 13 episodes instead of just telling me a complete story and ending it when it should be ended. So my biggest criticism of this show, again, is that I feel like it's just too many episodes and i think that that's a failing that a lot of other shows do not do i think stranger things season two was one episode too long i didn't think that they had to have nine i thought eight would have been fine like it was last season the defenders was plenty long enough and so on and so forth other streaming shows when you're talking about shows that you binge watch and that you want to go all the way through this one did not make me sit down and want to binge watch all 13 episodes at once i know that's a high bar to set But it's been set by other shows that I didn't feel like it quite made it there. There were other characters here and there that were funny. And yeah, there was a whole Breaking Bad thing that that was pretty funny. But I don't even feel like they kind of did that right. The whole poking fun at things that everybody loves, things that's popular in culture. Not even sure that it got there. And it wasn't sentimental enough either. I, I feel like this entire show could be summed up in that... Everything was just enough to keep me interested. It wasn't great. It wasn't terrible. It was good and enough to keep me interested. I'm not sure if that's good enough to make me want to watch, say, a second season of Future Man, but it's certainly good enough to make me want to finish it. I am going to finish it. I will eventually get to the end. Maybe the intro of next week's show when I'm through with it, I'll I'll revise this a little bit, but for now, don't feel like it should have been 13 episodes. I would have put it at eight condensed the story a little bit and made it end a little bit faster because I think that, I mean, if you're a fan of shows like this at all, you sort of see what's coming and I kind of hope that a twist isn't so ridiculous that it makes me not want to watch the last couple of episodes of this show going forward and not, not that I want to be right about it. I'd kind of like to be wrong and, and, and make it do something to go, Oh, I did not see that coming. That makes the show better. But for now, I kind of see where it's coming. The humor wore on me as the episodes went on. There were a couple of good jokes here and there, but I really wish it could have stayed consistent as the first couple of episodes. I don't feel like since I didn't get all the way to the end of this, and I'm not really giving away too many spoilers, I don't really want to give a rating for this. I will say that, again, I will finish the first season, but a second season, I'd be a little on the fence on, depending on where the story's going to go. So I'm not going to rate this one this week. Maybe I'll update it at the beginning of next week's show. That's going to do it for my review of Future Man on Hulu. But up next, there's plenty of nerd news to get to. We'll tackle it on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Tim Rozon from on Earth on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to plant a few happy trees because it's time for nerd news. And in a true Deadpool fashion, the first trailer for Deadpool 2 was released and it is a Bob Ross spoof. You see Deadpool in the Bob Ross wig doing a little painting, messing it up, and things are transforming. And, you know, Deadpool's giving his typical Deadpool jokes. But as far as new footage... We didn't really get a whole lot from the movie. I mean, you see some guns blazing. You do see Negasonic Teenage Warhead has her X-Men outfit now, so no longer Colossus' kind of trainee, so we think that she's moved up a notch. And you see at least a few of the characters that you expect and a few of the characters that you love, but we don't get a look at some of the others. You don't really get a sense of what this is going to be about or anything. It's just, hey... Classic Deadpool. You get to see that Thanksgiving poster that was released online not too long ago. That was a part of it at the very end. You don't really show a whole lot, but at the same time, you can't not look forward to this movie, right? It's going to be coming out on June the 1st, by the way, 2018. So, it's remember the first release was in, what, February? Now it's in the summer movie season, if there even is a movie season anymore. So, Deadpool definitely moving up in the world. And again, not a whole lot to talk about here. But, man... Am I looking forward to this? As far as the next trailer that came out this week, Rampage, which, of course, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is going to be a big part of that. It's going to be coming out on April the 20th, 2018. And, I mean, if you play the Rampage game, which I did a lot on NES years ago, never thought in a million years that this would be a movie, but I guess when The Rock wants something, The Rock gets it. And, you know, it's funny, before I even get to the trailer itself... It's not like this movie doesn't have a lot of star power. You've got Jeffrey Dean Morgan. You've got Joe Manganiello. You've got quite a few stars in here. But at the same time, I mean, yeah, you've got the giant albino gorilla, and it's, it's going to be a gene manipulation thing. You know, they started out as regular-sized animals. They touch something, and then all of a sudden they start to become huge. They start to alter, it starts to alter their personalities, stuff like that. It's almost like the touch virus. From Gotham, right? That's ex- except that when they got the Tetch virus, they didn't grow by like five or six times their normal size. So it's very similar to that. And then basically, what I saw from this trailer is that it's San Andreas with giant animals, because you know that San Andreas it is. This, it's the same people that may are making Rampage, and of course the same star, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. There's even a scene in this trailer where you see him get ready to take off. In a helicopter, and then he can't, and there's a joke about it. But I'm, I'm thinking that I, I almost felt like I was watching the trailer for San Andreas, and I'm like, oh, there's the giant gorilla. Oh, there's the giant wolf. There's the giant crocodile. Here's the other thing. Did you show too much in this first trailer? I think you kind of did. You, you, I mean, the giant gorilla, show me that. But give at least wait until the second trailer to show your second giant animal. I don't even want to call them monsters because, I mean, I guess they are. And then you see the Easter egg to the video game where it's like, yay, they're tearing up the buildings and they're smashing things to pieces, which was the basis of Rampage in the first place. But I, I will give it this. It's at least trying to give you something substantive because you see that, you know, Dwayne The Rock Johnson's character, Davis Okoye, loves animals. He's taking care of them. The, the gorilla George, who actually is one of the, grows up to be one of the monsters... You know, he doesn't want them to kill him, but it seems like the government wants to and that's one of the things he he wants to try and stop this, but he also wants to try and protect his friend. And there's even a line where the guy says, "You like animals more than people." And then he says, "Yeah, I do." And you know, some of the rocks movies are like this, you know, some forced humor. Yeah, there's going to be plenty of action, there's going to be plenty of guns blazing and cool technology, but I mean, I don't know if this is something we really needed. I mean, I kind of felt that way when this was announced. Will it look cool? I'm sure that in in a lot of respects, yeah, it's going to look cool. But again, it's just not something that I feel like I need to see. I obviously will, so I can review it for you guys. But at the same time, no, I don't think we really needed a Rampage movie. Sticking in the movie realm, you know the Justice League is out. Gonna be giving you my spoiler field review next week. But there's a little bit of news that has been kind of on again, off again. And USA Today is reporting this that Ben Affleck's future as Batman once again up in the air. And he's contemplating reprising his role in The Batman, which is gonna be done by Matt Reeves. But he actually wants to have a quote cool way to segue out of playing Batman. Now, Nothing goes on forever, right? No actor plays the same role in all these movies. You know, Marvel's been very, very lucky to have all of their stars back in all of their movies to this point, and they've locked them up, and they've done that. And and DC didn't really do that with their universe. They didn't really lock up any of their actors and actresses. I mean, they didn't even have Gal Gadot signed up for Wonder Woman 2 until the last minute. So it's not like they've inked Affleck to like an eight picture deal or like give him the Sebastian Stan deal that Marvel gave him for Winter Soldier. I, I I have loved Affleck as Batman, but I could I could see any number of other actors taking up that role and it wouldn't be the first time. I mean, granted, when Michael Keaton left the role years ago, he definitely left some big shoes to fill. I thought Val Kilmer actually did a pretty darn good job. And then you've got the debacle that was George Clooney. And then Christian Bale when they decided to reboot the universe. I'll be honest. This, it's not like life will end if Ben Affleck is not playing Batman anymore. And I don't think Ben Affleck was ready for the criticism. That was going to come from Batman versus Superman and some of these DC movies. I thought that he was just going to be like, hey, it's cool. I'm playing Batman. Everybody's going to love me. And yeah, while they loved him, they didn't love the movie. And as a filmmaker, and that's what Affleck has become as a filmmaker. As that, I think he took it personally. And the fact that, I mean, he he's decided when he decided not to direct the Batman anymore, maybe this was more than he really expected. To take on, and I think that that's one of these things about these big superhero movies. Sometimes it becomes way more than you thought it was going to be, and and you sort of want out. And I mean, you see, Army Hammer came out this week and said, "Man, I'm glad Justice League Immortals didn't happen because I'm glad I didn't have to play Batman." There's a lot of pressure in that character, maybe more so than any uh, any other character in fandom is is batman there's a lot of pressure there so i understand why you might want out i don't want to go into names because i want to wait till it's official and he's absolutely out and they start talking about recasting the batman before i go into names of who i think might be able to play batman in the future but again i don't think sky would fall here if we lost ben affleck i do think he's done a very good job but that doesn't mean he's the only one that could play this character Moving on to something, speaking of things that we don't really need, 20th Century Fox. They're in the news, almost been bought out by Disney. Now it looks like Comcast and NBC might be putting in a bed. Well, now we see that they're going to be be doing another X-Men movie spinoff with multiple man. Yes, you heard me right. Deadline's actually reporting that... James Franco is going to be playing Jamie Madrock, the multiple man himself, in the movie. And we've got Simon Kinberg, who's on, on to direct, and Alan Heidenberg, that's also going to be a part of that. He, of course, is one of the people that scripted the Wonder Woman movie. And if that wasn't enough of a movie that we didn't need, then we also have another Spider-Man spinoff that's going to be coming. Morbius the Living Vampire is going to be getting his own movie, with the, with the Power Rangers writers. And that's going to be, of course, from the Sony Spider-Man universe. Okay, I'm just going to say this one time. Stop it. Absolutely, positively stop it. Not every character, not every villain, not everyone deserves their own movie. That last story uh, comings from The Hollywood Reporter, by the way. It's time to stop. I mean, what's next? A fing-fang-foom film? I mean, that's just... It's ridiculous. We don't need all these characters with all these different movies. If you want to put Morbius, the living vampire, in a Spider-Man movie, fine. No problem with that. Not every character can carry their own movie. And maybe there's a fan of Morbius out there that is ready to put me on blast for not thinking that Morbius can carry his own movie that's fine. I know you love certain characters that not everybody else loves. I'm a big fan of Dr. Fate. I'm a big fan of Red Tornado, but that doesn't mean I think that they deserve their own movies. I am fully willing to admit that. Those are the, those are the kind of characters that if I get them in a TV series or if I get them in a movie, I am psyched, right? If they're in any way involved in a project, I'm psyched, but I am also, I'm also realistic enough to know that there's no way in hell These characters deserve to have their own movie. And it's not because they're not great characters. It's just that how do you base a two-plus-hour movie around multiple man or Morbius the Living Vampire? And not to mention, you really want to drudge up a character in in multiple man that was in X-Men Last Stand? That's when we last saw multiple man. Think about that for a second. So whose idea was it to say, oh, you know what? Let's just give this guy his own movie. Maybe Franco was a fan. I don't know, but none of this makes sense. And you want the bubble to burst? We keep talking all the time about the superhero bubble bursting. You know what's going to make that happen? Making movies like this because they're going to stop making money because the general public, who I've said a million times on this show, the general public has to care about these movies too. It's not just for us guys. The general public cares. We get more of these movies. We get what we want if these movies make money and people go to see them, not just us. Okay. That's one of the things that we need to happen. James Franco not a big enough of a star, not a big enough draw for people to go see a movie about a comic book character just because he's in it. And and, and I know they're probably going to shoot for the moon to get somebody to play Morbius the living vampire to try and get people to see that movie. At least that one, I could almost see filling the gap that is the universal monster movies that just aren't happening right now. And and the horrible Dracula movies that we've had, maybe I could see that happening. But again, how does he carry his own movie? I mean, these are characters they could barely carry their own books. Now I know that you know, multiple man has been involved in X Factor, and I know that we're going to see 20th Century Fox go down that road at some point. I'm not saying don't have him in that movie. I'm just saying, why on earth do we need to give them their own movie? Makes no sense to me. I don't know. I don't know why. We need this. And, and I'm going to keep on the same kind of theme. Other things that we may or may not need, Lord of the Rings, I'm sure you heard it by now, getting a TV series, a multi-season order at Amazon. And that's according to multiple sources. And it's official now. This is actually happening. And it looks like we're going to see stuff that's that's kind of bridging the gap between the Hobbit movies And Fellowship of the Ring. They're also talking about possible spinoffs. There's nothing that's really set in stone on this. It could be like a Game of Thrones where they decide to do multiple spinoffs. Maybe you have the first season of the show go on before you decide, okay, this is a spinoff that I want to do. But here's the thing. I love the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I will even say that I liked the Hobbit movies. I know I'm in a minority there. Uh, Of course, I was more of a fan of the animated Hobbit movie. But that's just me. I'm just, I love this story. But at the same time, I feel like this is a story that's been told and been told very, very well. I have not felt like I was left longing for anything in these stories. And and I don't mind the video game. Shadows Mordor, fine. Do that. Tell a different story. Do it in a video game. Video games are just a different entity, okay? A series... I mean, of course I'm going to watch it because I'm a fan. I'm just worried that, you know, you, at some point you cheapen it, don't you? And and that goes with spin-off movies as well. At some point you're cheapening the main story. I mean, you could say this for Star Wars. You could say this for Spider-Man. You could say this for a lot of things. Some of the movies are going to end up being good and shows and stuff like that. Some of them are not. But if you just keep doing it over and over and over again... It's not special anymore if you do it all the time kind of thing, you know what I mean? So this is something that I really hope is good. I really, really do, but again, I don't feel like there's a part of the story that needs to be told anymore. It's different with Star Wars, too, because Star Wars has had novels to, that, that have gone off and, and created canon on their own and continued canon. There are so many of those stories that could be told. Lord of the Rings has been a classic story for years, and I'm fine with letting that sit there. I don't need any more Lord of the Rings, but if it's great, I'll shut my mouth and praise it just like you guys will. Because if it ends up being great, I'll shut my mouth and love it. So we'll just have to see what happens. One more story I want to talk about, and that is Hitman, a game that I love. I've talked about this before. Well, they are going to bat one more time with Hitman, but this time... As a TV series, Hulu's picked it up. It's going to be from John Wick writer Derek Callstad. And I got to say this. According to Deadline, by the way, this story, I have to say that I think that this is what they should have done with Hitman Agent 47 all along. I understand wanting to make movies. Movies tend to make more money. Cool. Understandable. But this is a character and a series that can really be done on TV, especially as a binge-watching type of thing. This is something you could tell standalone stories, just like the games. The games did follow some sort of a pattern, but at the same time, we're able to tell standalone stories and have different villains and have different antagonists pop up every now and then. You could even do a villain of the week kind of thing, even though, you know, it's very... Age of 47 is very much an anti-hero. You could call him a villain, whatever you want to call him. He is a compelling enough character to warrant doing something like this. And then you end up with somebody that was part of the John Wick movies, and I think you've got a good pairing here. I think you've got somebody who's going to be able to understand 47, understand the lineage of the character understand the source material that came before it but at the same time I'm not married to the source material from Hitman if you want to tell an origin story like they're doing in the in the comics with Dynamite right now the birth of the Hitman story if you want to do something like that fine if you don't you just want to pick it up where he's already 47 and he's already been being given contracts and stuff like that and he's making that turn with Diana where he's trying to to trying to go against the agency I'm fine with that too. Just make it good. Make it interesting. And don't make it too much like the game. I think that that's one of the failings of some of the of the, of the movies. Is that you almost trying to make it too much like the game at certain points. And then at other points we're like, you know what? We're just going to do what we want and screw the game. So this is something, again, I think works perfect for TV. This is one I actually am looking forward to coming. Because this is something I think could be done really well. That's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, we're going to take up some fencing with fence number one from Boombox and Boom Studios. C.S. Picat, writer, going to be joining me next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer James Asmus, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Well, it's time to raise our epees in unguard because Boombox released a very, very unique book, to say the least, called Fence this week. And I just happen to have the writer with me at C.S. Picat. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Please tell me I pronounced that right, because I can't tell you how many times I, I butcher names on this show.
1: <laughs> it's pronounced per cat but um,
0: it gets lots of different See, variations. But... Every time, I swear. But I mean, anybody that listens to this show knows that about me anyway. But, <laughs> so let's dive into this book now. I guess the first question that I think anybody would ask is, why fencing? So um,
1: I fenced when I was in high school. I love the sport. And I'd always sort of had half a mind that it would make a really great setting for a story. And then I think I went to live in Japan. I lived there for about five years. And as I'm sure you know, um, sports comics are just super popular over there and I got really into them. But fencing was still unexplored. And um, I started talking with Daphne at Boom and sort of floated the idea with her and she was really excited. And I think um, not only is there like fencing so psychological, it's a like a uh, one-on-one combat sport. It has a uh, strategic chess-like element, and any slightest slip of concentration can win or lose you the match. So it's it's very dramatic and exciting. And I think it's also really like it's quite visual. Like, it's like beautiful silhouettes and often quite striking poses as well. So it just seems very suited to a comic.
0: You know, it's it's funny you mentioned visually striking, and you also mentioned Japan. Do, do I kind of sense a kind of a manga influence here?
1: Uh, I think definitely. I'm de- and like uh, most of my favorite sports stories are probably come from kind of like the sports comic or sports manga realm from Japan. Like, there's one or two kind of classic Western sports stories that I also love, like Rocky or like, uh, well, now I'm stretching. Maybe there's Rocky. <laughs> Maybe there's Friday kid when I was a kid. But, like, they're just so good at um, sports narratives over there, and it's quite an unexplored genre um, in Western comics by comparison, I think.
0: Oh, that's that's putting it mildly, for sure, and that's one of the great things about it. Now, speaking of which, I mean, how important was it for you, especially somebody who's who's played the sport, to really embrace the terminology and essence of the sport while still trying to tell this young adult story?
1: Yeah, I wanted the fencing to feel really authentic. I think, what you know, when you... Um, when you're reading a comic or a book, part of the joy of it is immersing yourself into a new world. And also I really hope that, um, that fencers will pick up the comic as well. So I wanted it to feel authentic to them and for the authenticity to also kind of draw in new readers. So I'm, I work with, my fencing coach is also the choreographer for the comic. Um, and so we just, we try and make sure to get things as accurate as possible. Um, we choreograph the scenes first and then we'll often we'll, we'll fence them out together uh, and then film our fencing from multiple angles to provide uh, visual reference um, for Joanna, um, our amazing artist. And just in that way, I hope that it it's just feels very grounded in the real. Like you mentioned manga before and my favorite manga, sports manga, the ones that feel authentic. Maybe I like less the ones where... They're uh, ostensibly about tennis, but everyone's doing wild attacks called kind of like, I don't know, laser beams from my eyes attack. Or <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's actually really interesting, though. You actually filmed these and sent them to Joanna. That's, that's so unorthodox and cool. <laughs> it's really fun. I feel like
1: when you're, um, you know, when you're a writer, you've got to take every excuse you can to make your job as fun as possible.
0: <laughs> This is sort of your um, first comic book project, too, right? So, did did it feel cool yeah. to be able to just jump in like that and actually be able to bring a visual representation to something like this? It's so cool. It's so much cooler than writing a novel. <laughs>
1: I can't. I was blown says, away. Says
0: the best-selling author, by the way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but um, I've never had this experience before. Like writing a, writing a novel is such a a lonely journey. You're just you're literally sitting alone for hours at a time with nothing but the computer screen in front of you. And then at the end, you sort of emerge from your cave with with a book after months. Whereas with the comic, it's so collaborative, it's so much fun. And you don't have to draw wholly upon yourself. You know, the creative energies of other people are also um, informing the comic as well. And I think that can bring something more exciting because what you come up with can be beyond anything you could have envisaged if you were just imagining it on your own. So I found it an amazing experience. Um, I was really excited to get the opportunity.
0: So let's dive into the characters a little bit here. So when we're first introduced to Nicholas Cox, the first thing that really struck me about him was his determination. So we we also know he has some vulnerability as well. So how will we kind of see that balance out as the story progresses?
1: Right. One thing that I really love about Nicholas is his determination. He's definitely... An outsider protagonist, um, and he's trying to break into quite a, a world that's quite closed off to him, but that he yearns to join. And uh, his reasons for wanting to fence are really personal as well. I think that's where some of the vulnerability comes from too. So there's because there's quite a lot on the line for him emotionally. So as the story progresses, um, we'll kind of see his we'll we'll see, I guess, where his determination will take him, how far it will take him. But uh, hopefully, you know, he's, um, he's about to join his new school, so he's going to pick up friends and rivals along the way, or um, we'll meet a cast of characters that will interact with him in interesting ways.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, because one of the things that I, you, I love that you did in this first issue, and I mean, to say that he isn't welcomed is an understatement, I think. <laughs> now, it, it would have been easy to kind of follow that trope of having one person accept him, but you decided not to do that. How much of that really kind of runs parallel to the family backstory and the stuff that happens with his dad that we find out about him in this first issue?
1: I have to say that for Nicholas, like, uh, in a way, there's some elements of his story that are quite personal because I was definitely a scholarship student to quite a, how can I say, do you have the word, like, preppy?
0: Oh, <laughs> yeah, America? that's that's prevalent here, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite a, quite a kind of,
1: like, a posh, kind of snobby um uh, high school. So I kind of know the feeling and but I think we can all relate to the feeling where you kind of like step into a room and you're like, oh my gosh <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no one oh, quite. Yeah. Like I yeah. feel like a bit of an outsider. So that's Nicholas's experience. And you know, I didn't want to make things too comfortable for him. But um I think part like at the center of his character he's really like he's seeking a connection to family, really. And that's what drives him to fencing. And hopefully that's what he'll Go on to hopefully find um, at his school, you know, a circle of friends, a kind of found family, I suppose, um, when he gets there.
0: I'm talking to C.S. Pacat, who is the writer of Fence Number One from Boom Studios and Boom Box, which of course is available now. Now, we were talking about Joanna the Mad here not too long ago, kind of the perfect choice to draw this book. So, uh, given she's what so ta- good, about, she really is. So, given what kind of what we were talking about a couple minutes ago, what was your first reaction when you saw those? first few panels that we sent back to especially since that's not really something that you're used to as an author.
1: Oh my gosh, I was so excited. I have been her fan for years. Just a fan of her fan art. She like uh, she drew this piece of fan art of um, Mulan uh, you know the movie mm-hmm. and it was like a modern day Mulan. It was just really slick and cool. this kind of kind of cool tomboy um, Mulan in a, with a hat on backwards and like in a very androgynous t-shirt. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I've just got a crush on this version of Milan, like instantly. And when uh, I heard like, uh, when we started talking about who might come on board as an artist, Joanna's n- name instantly came up. And as someone that my editor had been keen to work with as well. And then I was on tenterhooks. So I was like, is she gonna be available? Will mm-hmm. she have time to do the project? And then um, the first pages that I saw uh, of hers, I was just completely blown away. She's so good at characterization, I think she can just she can just capture moments and um so perfectly that there's just I don't know, it gives them a really iconic feel. So the characters feel very kind of iconic, I think. Um she's really brought them to life and given them each really their like this superb individuality.
0: I really love it. It's funny because without spoiling anything, there's a moment between Nicholas and Saiji at the end of their match In the book, that I think was probably her best few panels. I'm sure you know which which moment I'm talking about. And it really, I thought, brought out both of their characters so well just in a short amount of time.
1: Yeah, she can capture so much in one panel. And I think, as well, she's so good at setting up. I I, I almost don't know how to describe this, but like within the panel, the artwork feels really tense. Like she captures Mm -hmm. moments at, at their most kind of tense and interesting when the kind of most amount of drama is implied. And I just, yeah, I think it looks superb. The first artwork that she ever sent through was actually the shot of um, Nicholas walking into the locker rooms.
0: Oh, and that was tense. And
1: kind all the boys of giving him a side eye. Yeah. And it just had such a great, almost like mean girls quality to the boys' reaction. Oh, that that's a perfect <laughs> um, yeah, way to I describe like, it, actually. Yeah,
0: yeah. Oh, wow. Now, we actually haven't talked about psy yet, so... We know little about him based on this first issue other than how awesome he is at fencing. So, But that kind of leaves, he leaves a lasting impression on this issue at the same time. So without spoiling anything, when will we learn a little bit more about him and how would you describe him? I would
1: describe him as, well, he's a fencing prodigy and um, he's definitely the one to beat. Everyone wants to either beat him or be him, I think, everyone on the fencing scene. Um, But no one can beat him because uh, he's just so much better than everyone else. Uh, he's been training since he was a small child. He He's the seemingly effortless perfectionist, but, of course, there's a lot of effort that goes on behind the scenes. And uh, I think because of that, he gives quite an initial impression of being, like, almost aloof or impenetrable. But as the comic goes on, we're going to learn a little bit more about him. We'll learn uh, – oh, I'm not sure how much I can say without spoilers – but we'll learn – uh, why he's at the school that he's at, we'll, and we're going to kind of learn a little bit about his backstory and his his reasons for fencing as well.
0: Believe me, I'm I'm patting myself on the back now, not talking about the the big reveal at the end, which if you read Fence Number One, you'll understand what I'm talking about. So so we'll be hush hush on that, and we'll talk about this. You're well known for your Captive Prince trilogy and and just an amazing series that you've written. So. Who would you say would be a better fit in a royal type of atmosphere, Nicholas or Saiji?
1: <laughs>
0: Definitely Seiji. <Sagey. laughs>
1: I think Nicholas would find that really tough going. Nicholas is the guy. I, th- I think we can. I'd all identify with Nicholas because Nicholas is the guy who doesn't know which fork to use, you know, at the table. Oh yeah. <laughs> and that's the guy you kind of root for often, you know. Whereas I think I think Seiji has quite a. Um, quite a royal atmosphere
0: yeah i would say that that puts it mildly and hopefully we see a little bit more of that coming out in future issues and i mean the book hasn't even been out very long but i know that you're having a chance to get out and meet some fans and i've even actually seen some fan art even before the book was out i saw fan art on twitter so how great has it been seeing the support from them for such a different project for
1: you oh my gosh
0: it's so exciting
1: um with i think uh I'll always remember the very first piece of fan art that we received for *Fence*, and um, I couldn't believe that we received it before the comic even came out. Um, but I think that there was something about the characters that that people were responding to even before they kind of read the story, which was amazing. And they're so, like, fan artists are so talented, man. They're so, they're just incredible. It's a really amazing feeling when um, you kind of. It feels like, like a almost like, um, just very special to have someone else's creativity interact with your own, with your own work. Yeah. So yeah, it's been amazing. Um, and then once the comic was released as well, then there there was sort of even, even more fan art came after that. So yeah, really wonderful.
0: I'm telling you guys, once you read Fence Number One, you're going to be searching every sports channel you have for <laughs> fencing on TV, whether it's two in the morning or whatnot, it's going to make you a fan because fence number one But I one is- should
1: say, um, I should say that like fencing can actually be quite a tough spectator sport to get into. You know, it's really fast. That's the problem with it. And like fencers will often talk about how hard it is to draw new people into the sport because it's not, you know, it's not like, you know, something like football, um, whatever football means to you in your country <laughs> or like, um, you know, or tennis or, one of those sports where you can see the action, like the action of fencing happens in a split second. It's quite hard to get your eye in. But like, what's been great about doing the comic is you can slow everything down and show panel by panel what's happening. So I feel like it's like um, it's quite a good introduction to the sport, even if even if people are having have kind of maybe seen it but thought like, oh, that's it's a bit too blurry for me to understand <laughs> the sword strokes.
0: I yeah. feel like even more of a reason. To go get Fence Number One from Boom Studios, and every week <laughs> after that, just add it to your pull box because you're definitely going to be hooked. It's writer C.S. Picat. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thanks, James. That was great. Man, I just love her energy when she's talking about that book and about fencing as well. Thanks to C.S. Picat for joining me this week to talk about Fence Number One, which is available from Boom Box, the imprint of Boom Studios right now find issue two coming up next month and again this book's way beyond just fencing but it can actually get you into the fencing as well there's so much of the terminology but you don't feel lost it's very very neat a really good young adult story and something that as an adult i think you could definitely enjoy as well i love the heck out of this book from the get-go so go out and get fence number one at your local shops and digital retailers right now That'll do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Of course, find us all over social media slash Down and Nerdy, at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and on Instagram, and find out more information about shows weekly and a whole bunch of other stuff that's going on on our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. And remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.